is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of November 14th. It is the third week of the Tournament of Champions. Uh, We're going into the finals. Uh, But before we get into the games this week, Kyle, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. It seems like November and April in the school year is when it just feels like it drags and the students are tired of being there and the teachers are worn out and it's just, it's fine. It's fine, but everybody's sick and it's just, it. we're just in the doldrums right now. But next week mm-hmm. is Thanksgiving, so there's a break and then, you know, winter break comes up. So it, it, it picks back up again, but yeah, no, things are just kind of, things are just kind of meh right now. Uh, yeah. How are you? I'm okay. Uh, uh, yeah, things are just kind of meh right now, indeed. Um, this morning I was like, what is wrong with me? What's going on? Why do I feel like this? And I was like, oh, right, the clock's changed. That's that's it. <laughs> that's the thing. The days are getting shorter and the clock's changed. And I mean, they changed a little while ago now, but yeah, but still, still, there was some legislation working its way through to maybe not have the clocks change anymore. Yeah. And um, I think it died. I it think probably it died did at, at the federal level. Car- Colorado voters did. Um, we did pass that. Uh, in oh, nice. last year on the ballot or two mm-hmm. last year i think but if i recall there, there are a lot of stipulations about it like the other like rocky mountain front range mm-hmm. states need to also agree and mm-hmm. then it won't go into effect until after we initiate in the spring or something like that yeah there, there are factors to it but we did vote like as a state we did say yeah we want to just stop doing this yeah i would like to stop doing it I think there's a case, there are people making cases either for staying with the standard time or for staying with the daylight time. I don't really care. The change drives me crazy. Yeah, the change is the issue for most people. Because for most people, we just rely on the clock and it doesn't really matter whether the sun is up or down. But there are industries that do rely on the sun. And like, I get that. Yeah. But also like, I don't know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Is Is it worth the semi-annual like agony that everyone goes through yeah i don't know uh-huh and we've got we've got house guests coming for thanksgiving so um, oh, sweet. yeah yeah uh they'll be here uh tomorrow from when we're recording so you know by the time people are listening to this hey they'll already my, be in the house my family's here yeah uh, so that's fun um yeah Anyway, hey, let's talk about the Tournament of Champions yes. final games. Um, and uh, I mean, I think if anybody is listening to our very <laughs> niche extensive, podcast. niche, pedantic podcast about Jeopardy, they probably are familiar with the Tournament of Champions format changes. We are doing the first for the first time ever. Uh, the Tournament of Champions will be decided by a best of seven. I guess. Yep. They're not necessarily playing seven games, but whoever gets three wins uh, will be the winner. And once someone has three wins, 
they will end the tournament at that point. That's it. Yeah. So the contestants are Sam Buttry, an associate professor of operations research at the Naval Postgraduate School from Pacific Grove, California. Andrew He, a software developer from San Francisco, California. And Amy Schneider, a writer from Oakland, California. Uh, We've got a set of Californians here. Um, And I feel like this is a nice, it's a nice balance of like Sam from the professor's tournament, Andrew He, who... I mean, obviously was a super champion, right? But like, uh, you know, was not one of the three like seeded semifinalists, right? Like, Mm -hmm. um, and then one of the three seeded semifinalists. Um, And I don't, the, the people who come in from tournaments, like we've seen. We've seen them do pretty well. We've seen them do pretty well. I feel like they sort of get lost in the shuffle a little bit. People forget the tournament winners sometimes. Yeah, but they often they they often show up ready to go for the the tournament of champions. I mean Uh Francois made the finals my year. He was a teacher's tournament champion. Yeah. I'm trying to remember other names, but with a tournament tournament winners have done well historically, I think. Um, so our Jeopardy round categories are at the Mall of America, the Southern Hemisphere, Top of the Morning, Shark Tank, Streakers, and from D to O. Each correct response there will begin with D and end with O. And then DiMaggio was not in the from D to O D-J-O, category. No. <laughs> he was he was over in Streakers, <laughs> getting me very confused. Yeah. We had um, a triple stumper about which actress co-founded Fabletics. Uh, that was in the Mall of America category. And I thought Andrew's guess of Alba, I presume he meant Jessica Alba, was mm-hmm. I thought that was a really solid guess, right? Like she has pivoted from acting into owning like companies that sell retail products. Her, her companies sell, I think, like diapers and stuff yeah it's it's geared toward moms right it's a yeah. it's like a it's a, a parenting but like specifically mom kind of thing yeah i don't remember what it's called but that that does strike me as yeah what i remember yeah so it seemed like a good guess to me um kate hudson though is that the fabletics uh co-founder mm, yes definitely didn't know that one um we had a couple times this week where there were clues that it seemed like the contestants or one or more of the contestants had had sort of narrowed it down to a couple of options and were trying to, you know, kind of figure out whether to go for the coin flip and uh, which side of that to go for. Um, mm-hmm. So we saw that a couple times in this round. Sam got a rebound from Amy on, wait, which one came first? Hold on. Uh yeah, Sam got a rebound from Amy at the $1,000 level of the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, this republic of 115 islands northeast of Madagascar was uninhabited until its 18th century settlement by the French. Amy tried, what is the Maldives? That was incorrect. Sam got the rebound with the Seychelles. And then Amy got the rebound from Sam at the 25th pick, the $600 level of the same category, um, asking about the geographical line running around the globe at approximately 23 degrees, 27 minutes south latitude. Sam said, what's the tropic of cancer? And then immediately slapped his forehead as Ken ruled him wrong. Mm -hmm. And Amy got the rebound on that one. It's the tropic of Capricorn. Yep. That one really does only have 
basically two options. Yep. The first daily double is actually sandwiched between those two clues on the board, at least. It was pick number 13, the $800 level of the Southern Hemisphere. Andrew found it. He's at 1800 Sam's at 3000 Amy's at 400 He bets it all, um, and he always will. He gets a clue. You can go from A to Z, crossing the 660-mile border between these two Southern African countries. And he gets it correct with what are Angola and Zambia. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Amy has made a move and is now in the lead at 5,000. Andrew is at 4,200. Sam is at 4,800. And the double Jeopardy categories are your U.S. history test, primed for prime numbers, poetry, foreign words and phrases, we're in it, and the long haul. Uh, we're in it is people who are in a show and you have to name the show. Yes. The contestants were not familiar with Gerard Manley Hopkins um, at the $2,000 level of poetry, but mm. I really like his work. Mm. I am also unfamiliar with Gerard Manley Hopkins because I feel like I would have remembered someone named Manley. Mm, yeah. Terrible sonnets. Yes. Huh. I recognize, I mean, it could be that they you know, have heard of him, but just didn't recognize any of these terms. Terrible sonnets was, was new to me, but I recognized the title of Carrie and Comfort. I've, I've watched maybe like the first 10 minutes of Snowpiercer uh, and then like had to turn it off because of, you know, something came up and forgot to come back to me. But like the phrasing of that cl clue as choo choo David Diggs Sean Bean. <laughs> Choo choo. <laughs> Snowpiercer. It, my my sense is that it's it's dark. It's gonna stay yeah, dark. I was gonna it's say maybe <laughs> maybe the writers haven't watched it at all and they're just taking a guess. They're like, it's got a train, right? <laughs> like like Chuckington, right? It's got David Diggs, right? It must be like you know Thomas the Tank or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Daily Double number two is in poetry at the $800 level, and Andrew finds this one as well at the 13th pick. Um, and he makes it a true Daily Double, as he likes to do. He's at 7,800. Sam's ahead of him at 12,000, and Amy's at 6,600, just behind him. His clue is, Thou singest of summer in full-throated ease, Keats wrote, in Ode to This Creature. And he gets it right with a nightingale. I know we have talked about Keats mm -hmm. and others. I still didn't recognize the line, but if it's Keats and an ode to to a creature, it's gonna it's gonna be yeah. the Nightingale. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are other odes to other creatures. Actually, I'm not sure. There might be. There probably are. There might be. I don't but know. That's the one to know, especially at eight hundred dollar level. And Daily Double number three is in the foreign words and phrases category at the $1,600 level. It's pick number 16, so just a few later. And uh, Sam finds this one. He's at 13,200. He, he, he gets some good scores without Daily Doubles in these games. Yeah. Um, and he wagers 6,000. Andrew's ahead by about 3,600. Uh, so he, he's wagering to get in the lead. Gets the clue. A criminal who is caught red-handed is caught this way. Quote, while the crime is blazing. And uh, he guesses what is corpus delecti, which to me sounds like delicious body. Yes. Like, mmm, <laughs> tasty corpse. But uh, it is in flagrante delicto, which apparently mm -hmm. is Latin for the crime is blazing. Yep. So he drops back. Yeah. 
I like it when Ken, like, when Ken, Ken's reassurance that he was on the right track. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of cold comfort, but. There's something to be said of like, I'm, I'm still smart. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I got uh-huh. this thing wrong, but I'm still smart. Yep. Uh, so at the end of the double jeopardy round, Andrew has the lead with 18,800. Amy's at 14,600. Sam is at 12,000. And our final jeopardy category is geography. Uh, <laughs> spelled f-l-e-e and the clue is in july 2022 the ousted president of this country fled west across the indian ocean to the maldives uh sam got it correct with what is sri lanka he wagered zero um i think counting on likely not being able to win if either of the other two who are ahead of him get it right uh he wants to keep to a zero wager and hope that they'll drop below him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amy got it incorrect with what is Indonesia. Ken, uh, I don't, it, if we could see her regret what she had written, I, I missed it, uh, but Ken yeah. saw it for sure. Yeah, he must have, yeah. She said she did think of Sri Lanka too late. Uh, so what is Indonesia is her response and she's wagered 10,000, so she'll drop down uh, to 4,600 and Andrew got it correct, though, with what is Sri Lanka and a wager of 10,401, which brings him up to 29,201. Uh, so, you know, a cover, bo- cover bet, uh, which gives him the first win for the finals. Yeah. Uh, so on Tuesday, finals game number two with the same contestants. And the Jeopardy round categories are Zoom backgrounds of historic people, <laughs> USA, Facts and figures, playing the hits of 2022, what can I bring in my carry-on? That was a fun one. Mm-hmm. And Jeportmanteau, each response will be two words combined to make a new one. I guess you can bring Baba Ganoush. I mean, you can bring any food, right? Basically. Um, that's not I mean, super liquid. Yes, but anything that's even like liquid-ish needs to be 3.4 ounces or less as Baba Ganoush does. Um, I have gotten caught on this one because I assumed that peanut butter was not considered a liquid. That is incorrect. They will throw away the, your oh, jar of peanut butter. What? Yeah. How? But it's, I know. I know. But it's, it has no. Uh-huh. I, mm, it is malleable, but it is not fluid. Right. How? Mm. <laughs> yeah, I don't I, know. I don't... If you turn the container upside down and it doesn't fall out even slowly, I got. I don't know. I gotta feel like if it is. Uh, I guess I, the TSA isn't listening. They don't care. Yeah, no, no, they don't. Um, also, like, I mean, I thought it, I thought it was a fun uh, gimmick for for a category for for a quiz, but like the chances of your individual TSA agent knowing these rules and being like, ah, yes, you can bring those antlers. You can just, bring ninja stars. <laughs> get, get out yeah. your shuriken just as long as you show them to us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my kids are, my kids are older now, but like just in like moms of infants circles, like just the, the stories are constantly flying about the rules said this, but then I couldn't bring, you right. know, whatever, right? Like all kinds of problems with bringing 
breast milk or formula or baby food or all, you know, like just, just yeah, constantly. Or whatever, because yeah. yeah, it's like, what do you, mm. and like, it doesn't, you can print out the pages. Like they don't care. Yeah. Um, they're just going to do what they're going to do. Yeah. But Hey, Baba Ganoush means pampered daddy. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> Sam continues to, uh, delight the audience with his, <laughs> with his pop culture knowledge <laughs> pop culture knowledge uh he he got doja cat of course he did of course he did daily double number one is the 22nd pick at the 800 level of facts and figures and andrew finds this one as well he finds a lot of daily doubles um he makes it a true daily double uh with 3800 he's a $1, $1000 ahead of amy and $1200 ahead of sam he gets the clue 50% of our genes, 10,000 of 20,000, are regulated by this rhythm from Latin for about and day. And he gets it right. Circadian. Circa diem or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, which, hey, there's the problem with daylight savings time. Yeah. What's a circadian rhythm? No one yeah. knows. No one cares. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Um, at the end of the Jeopardy round, Andrew has kept that lead. He's at 9,200. Amy's at 4,600. Sam's at 2,200. And our double Jeopardy categories are first time responses, uh, responses that have never been on the program in their over 38 years. A little wow. piece of history, um, piece like the opposite of war uh, there. Now streaming on Dumont Plus. I, I don't get the joke here. Do you get the joke or what? Like, what's. I don't remember. Uh, we had a triple stumper, sadly, at the $1,200 level of first-time responses. They showed a, an image. This type of symbol keeps steady rhythm rather than providing the occasional crash. We've done that symbol to death. Andrew guessed what's a hi-hat. Uh, a hi-hat is the one that you click with your foot on your left foot. Typically goes on two and four in jazz patterns. But that is the ride symbol. The ride symbol mm. is where you get the you get the repetitive pattern that kind of gives sets the groove, you know, kind of sets yeah. sets sets the beat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, four out of the five first time responses were triple stumpers, which you know makes sense if you've studied Jeopardy. You know the ones that are yeah, going to come up. That's true. That's if true. They're throwing brand new stuff at you. Like, oh. mm-hmm. Amy got three of the two thousand dollar level clues. Andrew and Sam each got one. And one was a triple stumper. I thought that was impressive. Oh, three at the $1,600 level also. And Andrew and Sam each got one and one was a triple stumper. Yeah, she, as you know, as John talked about, like getting, buzzing in a lot, especially at the higher level is going to make the difference. Mm -hmm. Um, So it definitely did for her because uh, Amy found, uh, you know, daily double number two here at the, at pick number five. Um, pretty early in the round in the talk and econ category at the $1,200 level. Um, she wagered 4,000. Um, I believe she was behind, uh, Andrew by about by nearly 4,000. So it was to barely get in the lead and she got the clue. The birth of economics as its own discipline is often traced to a 1776 work by this man. And she works around to who is Adam Smith the wealth of nations so she gets herself in the lead but she's only barely ahead of andrew um with only one daily double left and that daily double andrew finds it 
at the $1,200 level of a little piece of history uh, as the 12th pick. Um, so they've been daily double hunting and, you know, successfully. He waffles a little bit here, I thought, about whether to make it a true daily double. Uh, he's at 10000 at this point with Amy just $200 ahead of him. Sam's back at $3,400. Um, and there are $22,000 left on the board at this point, uh, which is part of what he's taking into consideration, I assume. But then he goes for it, makes it a true daily double, uh, and gets the clue the 2006 Green Tree Agreement, settling a fight by shifting a peninsula from Nigeria to Cameroon, was brokered by this African. And if I remember correctly, we had both a map of the territory in question and, and the then a picture of the person whose name they were asking for. Um, and he gets it correct with Kofi Annan, the mm-hmm. former UN Secretary General. Uh, yeah, so Andrew <laughs> jumps up to twenty thousand there, and uh, mm-hmm. that's a that's a steep hill to climb for Amy and for Sam too, because he's even farther back. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Andrew's in the lead at twenty three thousand two hundred. Amy is at twenty two thousand two hundred, and Sam is at ninety four hundred. Get the final jeopardy category names the same. And the clue, name shared by a Victorian novelist and an 1805 flagship captain whose name is heard in a famous phrase. Sam and Andrew both guessed what is Gridley, which Mm -hmm. is a name that I did not recognize. And apparently that is a well-known naval name, but that's not correct. Sam bet zero. Amy got it incorrect also with what is Nelson. And uh, she had just wagered, wagered 1100 mm-hmm. uh, And Andrew, like I said, wrote what is Gridley and made a cover bet of 21201 mm-hmm. So he drops down to last place. And Amy wins her first. Apparently, this is Thomas Hardy. Yeah. The quote or phrase in question is, kiss me hardy, which... What does that well, mean? Yes, I, I I did not look up context for this. When I, I look guess. up context for a, a perplexing Final Jeopardy, it's on it's on the Jeopardy fan. Yeah. Um, yeah. Andy feels that this is a banger of a Final Jeopardy clue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Among Admiral Nelson's dying words. Wow, I even did a deep, deep dive on Admiral Nelson, right? The Battle of Trafalgar? Yes, yes. Name of the captain of the HMS Victory. I totally, yeah, I do not remember that at all. Because hmm. I just I just assumed Nelson was the captain of the HMS Victory. But yeah. I guess he was the admiral, so he wasn't a captain. I guess. Um, now yeah, we know. Anyway. I don't feel too bad for not knowing this because uh, none, <laughs> none of the finalists knew it. Um, yeah. Uh, so on Wednesday, Andrew and Amy each have a win under their belt. And uh, our Jeopardy round categories are a bouquet of flowers, American history, better call Saul, rappers who act, beastly book titles, and making an assonance of yourself. Which is like same vowel sound. Same vowel sound, yes. Uh, so, which th- the the two hundred dollar clue threw me off though. 
Asinenser valorime is found in this, which proverbially gets the worm. Like when you say it out loud, the early bird has it, but it's not the same vowel, you know? Yeah. Like it, so. Yeah, it's E A and then I, but it's both of them are kind of that, like, Er. are they a a short U or are they a schwa? Who knows? Yeah. It it can help to think about. I mean, it, it, you don't have a whole lot of time to think when you're when you're responding to these. But um, my my daughter is in first grade, and there's a lot of sounding it out. And I'm like, oh yeah, no, she would definitely. I don't know if either of those are a sight word, but if they aren't, it, mm-hmm. we would definitely get that as U R L Y B U R D. Yep. If she were to yes write it herself, yeah, yeah. My <laughs> that reminds me. My daughter tried to tried to write, write the word squirrel the other day. Mm-hmm. And it came out S C R W L, and I was like, "That's so good!" All right, <laughs> yep. The rappers who act category was the one I was talking about, where Sam did disappointingly. He didn't even get a single one, man. Mm. And the six hundred, eight hundred, and thousand dollar clues were all triple stumpers. I can't believe that they did not know that. In 2011, this rapper joined Enrique Iglesias on Tonight, I'm Loving You, and played Tej in Fast Five. Andrew, guessed who is Tyrese? That's Ludacris. Yes. Come on. Your favorite rapper. Luda. Yeah. I knew, I knew that one. Mm-hmm. I actually knew all of them, which... Nice. I don't, I don't claim to be a huge hip-hop fan, but I actually did know all of those, so... Yeah. I just knew the first couple, but so did the contestants. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Queen Latifah and Ice-T. That's all. Always funny to me that, you know, Ice-T had, you know, a song called Cop Killa. Uh-huh. And, th- and then he go and he's like, <laughs> and then he just like, like makes it all of his career playing a cop on TV. Mm-hmm. Whatever, man. You know, make your, yeah. make your money. Apparently there are Dracula orchids in Central and South America. Yeah, they look kind of horrifying. They do. They do. Although Ken did not treat us to a Dracula Maybe he's yeah. maybe he's respecting. Maybe he's he has you know decided that like that was Alex's thing, and and I I will not touch it. I will leave it mm-hmm. as it was. You know, Alex would have. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, Alex would not have hard. been able to leave that alone. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Daily Devil number one is in the American history category at the thousand dollar level. Andrew finds this one, which he you know like we said he tends to find them. Uh, it's pick number eleven. He's at 400. Sam's at 200. Amy's at 2,000. So he bets 1,000 and gets a clue. At this New York battle in the fall of 1777, nearly 6,000 British troops surrendered to colonial forces. And this one seemed to take him a little bit longer than normal. Like he always thinks about his responses, but uh, he got there with what is Saratoga. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round. Amy is at 3,800. Andrew is at 3,800. Sam is at 3,600. So Sam will go first in Double Jeopardy with the categories Four Weddings and a Funeral, Opera Characters, Compound Words, Cold Around the Globe, Heard in the Movie, and Spellementary. You have to say the word formed by the symbols of the chemicals that were listed. I thought that one was so fun. It was fun. That's a that, I, that's a fun wordplay plus chemistry mm-hmm. category. Yeah, and I don't know how actually quick they were on the buzzer, but they were quick on the buzzer for these. Yeah, I struggled with them. Most of them, like there's just so many steps to get them right. 
Yeah, you kind of got to be able to pull each symbol as Ken is saying it. Yeah, and like, I mean, even just like the $400 level calcium plus iron, I was like, C-A-F-E, CAFE? That's not a word. <laughs> CAFE. and then started being like and was i wrong about calcium cafe emily it's cafe Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's how you spell cafe come on Um, i think it's how you spell cave (laughs) yeah but like like i had already gone through so many steps getting c-a-f-e that like (laughs) i like applied like very like basic english pronunciation rules it was like cave not a word must have gotten the (laughs) chemistry part wrong that's right yep (laughs) Yeah, I feel like the opera characters category was it was truly opera content mm-hmm. by and large. I've I've sometimes noted that like you shouldn't be scared of opera categories or you know things that things that might be outside of your you know your wheelhouse or like your you know like you the knowledge areas where you're comfortable because like more than half the time in an opera category, the clue will be like in this opera by this composer, you know, there's something about like such and such historical event. And then they describe the historical event and you're supposed to right. name, name it. Right. And you don't need to know anything about the opera. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you know, or it'll be like a, like basically a vocabulary question or um, something about the literature source material. Um, and you don't need to know the opera or the composer at all but this one felt more like it was actually really questions about the operas themselves yeah i mean you could you could guess at the bellini opera of amina suffering from sleepwalking like it's a nocturnal Mm -hmm. affliction if you want to take a guess if you recognize parsifal from you know uh arthuriana Arthuriana, yeah yeah yeah. then you might be able to guess that he has the grail Mm -hmm. um but yeah you're right i i you needed to to know the operas or at least be familiar with them to mm-hmm. get there. Yeah. Daily double number two is in the compound words category at the $2,000 level. And Amy finds this one as the sixth pick. Uh, she's at 5,800. It's a very close game. Sam's at 5,200. Andrew's at 5,000. She wagers 5,000. And gets the clue, a point of reference from which measurements are made. It was once an actual notch or line made on a permanent object. She can't come up with anything. She ends up trying what is milestone. You can tell that she doesn't really think that that quite fits, but she can't come up with a better fit in the time she has. Um, And the correct response here is a benchmark. Mm -hmm. And she, you know, was, was frustrated to hear it, right? It's like... Of one of those things, is. you know, where like, if of course it is, right? Like, mm-hmm. and like, I know that feeling where you're like, you have to answer right away. And you're like, I could have gotten that if I could have sat with it for a minute or two, you know? Right. Um, right. Yeah. And uh, daily double number three is in the four weddings and a funeral category. Pick number 20. And Andrew gets this one too. He is at 5,800. Amy is down at 1,600. And Sam is at 12,400. And he bets all 5,800. And gets the clue, on September 12th, 1846, this pair of poets wed secretly at St. Marylebone Church. The bride lived with dad on Wimple Street for another week. And he gets correct with, who are the Brownings? (laughs) (laughs) Who are the Brownings? 
So at the end of Double Jeopardy, uh, Sam is in the lead with 14,800. Andrew has 13,200. Amy has 2,400. The final Jeopardy category is the New Testament. And the clue is Paul's letter to them is the New Testament epistle with the most Old Testament quotations. And if you're not on Jeopardy Twitter, you have been missing out on there. This was a totally fine and fair question with no controversy. This was a disaster. I mean... Nobody involved in production, I think, knew at the time quite how badly they were botching this one. And the the clergy are angry, the Jeopardy people are angry, and the Jeopardy clergy are living. Out of their gourds. <laughs> so uh, we're going to circle back. It's supposed to be Kyle's week for the deep dive, but I, I texted him and I was like, listen, I'll be talking about this for 20 minutes, so maybe that should be the deep dive instead of a rant that I do prior to the deep dive. Um, so we'll, we'll circle back on the content and I'm going to talk about some of this in a little bit, but anyway, there are some problems with this clue. The response they are looking for is the response that Amy gives them, which is who are the Hebrews? Amy's wagered a thousand, bringing her up to 3,400. Uh, Andrew uh, wrote something that looks like who are the Philippians? But uh, Ken reads it as Philippians. Um, regardless, that is not the response they were looking for, or mm-hmm. I think a correct response in this case. Um, Andrew has wagered 3201, uh, dropping him down to 9,999. Sam has written, Who are the Romans? Uh, which Jeopardy rules incorrect, although I, a person with a graduate degree in this subject, would argue that that is the closest thing to a correct response that there can be to this question. He's wagered 11,601. Uh, he's ruled incorrect, so that drops him down to 3,199. And I'll circle back on content, but like just a couple quick points here. The correct response to this clue, in my opinion, is it depends. And that makes it a bad Jeopardy clue. It yeah, depends. You, you got to have one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it depends on what you mean by. Paul's letter, right? Like what, what do you count as a Pauline epistle? And it depends on what you count as an old Testament quotation, given that we're working from texts that have no quotation marks in their original version, right? Every quotation mark in your, like if you open up your Bible and you're like, there are quotation marks there, like those were, those were added in translation. And so there's sort of an, there are a bunch of open questions about like what counts as a quotation. And like, if you, quote a single word, is that a quotation or just an illusion, right? If you quote a phrase and you quote it multiple times, is that once or is that once per time? And like, it depends. The other thing here is that I think they were trying to get make an interesting connection between Hebrews, right? The, the n- title and intended audience of the epistle and the content, right? There are lots right. of Old Testament quotations in Hebrews, because it's intended to be persuasive to people who see Hebrew scriptures, which Christians sometimes call the Old Testament, as authoritative, right? Hebrews is definitively considered not to be by Paul. That's If I haven't said that yet, that's the big problem. It doesn't say it's by Paul. Its authorship has been debated throughout the centuries. Some people have classified it as by Paul, but 
you know, it's it, there, there are, there is no credible scholar at this point, I think, uh, who, who would say that it is, who, who would say that it's by Paul. However, in the King James version, it is marked as Paul's epistle to the Hebrews because those particular people at that time happened to hold that position. So to get to the answer of Hebrews, you sort of have to know where the King James version falls on a fairly obscure debate, mm-hmm. which is knowable, but not super relevant, right? Like if we're going to grant that the King James version is the way we resolve these questions. And if we're not going to grant that, right, if we're going to say, well, it says Paul's letter and, you know, nobody thinks Hebrews is one of Paul's letters. So we're ruling Hebrews out a priori. We've got to choose from the ones that are considered Pauline or possibly Pauline like that. Now we're getting into like minutia instead of trivia, right? Right. Like you could ask a new Testament professor this and they would be like, well, I have to go, you know, take a look at some texts and see if I can come up with an answer and get back to you. And they, they might be able to come up with something authoritative, but like, it's not probably not. And also like, we're, we're getting pretty close to like, what have I got in my pocket? You know, right. like, um, <laughs> which is a totally valid question. Yeah. This is, I'm, I am so mad about this clue, especially because like, Andrew gets the win and like good for him. And he's been playing great games and it is not his fault that they put this terrible question up. Right. Right. But like if Andrew wins with a final jeopardy question, with one of the wins being a final jeopardy questions that never should have made it to the stage, you know, like I feel like that's going to be a tough spot for him to be in. Right. And Sam should have gotten the win. I think he led going into double jeopardy. Uh, so going into, sorry, he led going into Final Jeopardy. Uh, he gave, in my opinion, the closest thing to a correct response. Yeah. But like, it, it, it's, a, it's a correct response to what have I got in my pocket, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, all right. So I've, I've already ranted some, but oh man, I, I am, uh, you can find more of my thoughts about this on Twitter. <laughs> um, or later in the episode. Yes, or later in the episode. <laughs> so on Thursday, we have the, same contestants going into final number four. Andrew has two wins. Amy has one. Sam has zero. We have the Jeopardy round categories, historic dates. The King James Bible saith head for the hills. A word of warning songs from the hit album. And we'll need a drink after this. Yes, I think we will. And I like, I realize, you know, I'm, I am talking to a pastor, you know, you value certain things. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, what you do every day and the thing that you have committed your life to. But I, I, we've also talked on the podcast that maybe maybe a little less Christian centered yes. stuff would be Absolutely. great. Because like we just had a final Jeopardy that obviously was like problematic in the in the sense that it's not accurate. But also mm-hmm. it's a Bible question. And now we have an, another Bible category like occasionally having some things about Christian theology is fair because it is mm-hmm. trivia, but like, I, I don't know. I, there's so much more. Yeah. There's so much that we could have as content mm-hmm. because trivia can be literally anything you can know about. Yeah. The Jeopardy set of clues is ske- like skews very heavily toward Christianity and I would say the level of knowledge of Christianity that is expected is far beyond like Judaism. They'll ask some detailed, relatively detailed questions. Any other 
major or minor world religion, we stay pretty surface level. Yeah. And I would, I would like to see that change. Um, yeah. You know, if we could get some deeper cut clues about Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and, you know, never mind, like, and, and also some of the, you know, some of the other, you know, uh, other world religions, the, those ones I named are like, what were being, big, what were being big, listed as the major world religions, at least when I was learning a list of what the quote unquote major world religions right, the one, the ones are. that have by far the largest followings. Yeah. I think there's been um, some talk among the Jeopardy community of this isn't a fair level of detail to expect with regard to Christianity. And that, that certainly may be true. Um, I, I'm not going to weigh on in on that piece, but I certainly would like to see higher expectations about other religious practices. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. If, if it balanced out at least, but I just like this category came up like, you know, the next day and I was Mm -hmm. like, man, yeah. Cause I know Um, like we had, I, I had a Bible category in my mm-hmm. semifinal in the, in the tournament. And it's just yeah. Like, um, and a, a point that, um, that I've been kind of reflecting on as Jeopardy contestants have talked about this is, I mean, someone might look at this and think, Oh, well, some of these are from quotes and from the King James Bible are from the old Testament, which is a, even that, that phrasing, right. Is a Christian mm-hmm. framing. Right. Um, and a, you know, arguably a problemat- problematic one. But like this is the King James Bible is a translation that was intended for Christians and for church use. And so like get this like slightly archaic quotation exactly correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if it's a translation of a traditionally Jewish text, like Jewish folks may not have heard these passages in this translation, right? And might might struggle uh to to come up with it yeah yeah even if they know it in some other translation or or have read it in in the original hebrew right um Mm -hmm. yeah anyway yeah Yeah. i i uh i think that's that's very valid and thank you for raising it you're welcome moving on yeah sorry (laughs) uh we did get a mix of of correct answers in the songs from the hit album Sam didn't, you know, didn't run the pop culture this time. He mm-hmm. did get pur- Purple Rain. Makes sense because that was during his his time. Uh, but no one, no one remembered that the Spice Girls album was just called Spice. I wasn't totally. It's it said part of the group name, and I was like, it probably isn't girls, so probably it's Spice. But I didn't. <laughs> girls. <laughs> no, that's a Beastie I don't know. Boys song. It was the nineties. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Could have been anything. Yeah, Daily Double number one is in the historic dates category at the $1,000 level, and Andrew finds it at the 20th pick. He makes it a true Daily Double. He's at $1,600. He's, he's actually back in third at this point. Um, Amy's at $8,200. Sam's at $2,400. And uh, Andrew gets the clue in a historic first. This 75-year-old was sworn in as president of his country May 10th, 1994. And he gets that one correct. It's Mandela. Nelson Mandela. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, um, Amy's kept her lead with 10,200, Andrew's at 4,000, Sam's at 2,400, and our double Jeopardy categories are Native American place names in the U.S., memoirs and personal accounts, far out, miscellany, double letters in the middle, and silent films with Jacqueline Stewart, Mm -hmm. who I guess hosts 
Sunday silent nights on Turner Classic Movies. Yes. I'm sure my I, mom knew that. She probably watches it. Yeah, I think there there may be some overlap between <laughs> uh, Jeopardy's audience and TCM's audience. Maybe. But we yeah. did get Ben-Hur back in it. Yes! The iconic film based on the uh, enormously influential best-selling novel Ben-Hur, everyone's favorite trivia topic. Yep. Yep. Yeah, this is the this is the 1925 Ben-Hur, not the not the later one with Charlton Heston. Right. And it was the most expensive silent movie ever made. We also had Joan of Arc, another one of That's my true. favorite topics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At the $400 level of that silent movies category. There were there were some memoirs that I uh, enjoyed in the memoirs category. Educated by Tara Westover was a super interesting one. I recently read Persepolis, Mm. the graphic memoir uh, that came up at the $800 level. That was an interesting one, too. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Daily Double number two is in Far Out at the $1,600 level, pick number 13. Sam finds it. Uh, He is at $6,000. Andrew is also at 6,000. Amy's at 13,800. And he says, I'd like to bet the maximum amount permitted by law. Which I, I mean, I guess, I, I guess the law does <laughs> is involved in the wagering amount. Cause you agree to it. I don't know. So he wagers 6,000 and gets a clue. Once matter enters a black hole, it falls to the center and concentrates at an infinitely dense point called this. He gets it right with what is the singularity. And Amy's the one who finds daily double number three. So it's one daily double for each contestant in this game, which, you know, has not happened really. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's at the $800 level of Native American place names in the US, and it's the 20th pick. Amy wagers 4,000 of her 17,000. She's just a tad ahead of Sam, who has 16,800. Andrew's back at 6,000. And she gets the clue it's the capital of a state and the seat of Laramie County. And she gets that one correct. It's Cheyenne. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Amy is at 25,000, Sam is at 20,000, and Andrew is at 6,800. With the final Jeopardy category, movies and literature, and the clue Ridley Scott's first feature film, The Duelists, was based on a story by this author to whom Scott's, films, Scott's film Alien also pays tribute. Uh, this is another triple stumper. Andrew wrote, Who is Dick? Philip, Philip K. Dick, uh, presumably, unless he was just he was just angry because he was you know he didn't <laughs> this game did not go well go as well for him. But anyway, uh, that's yeah, incorrect. Ken supplied Philip K. Dick, I assume, and Andrew agreed. Andrew just kind of like who Andrew knows, like, really? Sure, sure, <laughs> yeah, whatever, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I'm talking to you. Uh, and so he drops to 801. Sam wrote, "Who is AC Clark?" Uh, that is also incorrect, and he bet twenty thousand. I hmm. I would have thought that a wager of five thousand one to six thousand three hundred. Yeah, you want to? Like you'd probably want to stay above stay above Andrew. Stay above Andrew, up, but right? try to get ahead of Amy. Maybe if you get mm-hmm. it right, and Amy is probably going to wager a certain amount. Although Amy also. Amy did not make a cover bet. She wrote, who is Lovecraft? And that's also incorrect. And only wagered 6,000. Mm-hmm. So if Andrew, or if, if Sam had been correct, it would have been enough to overcome Amy, even if she had been correct. So right. 
interesting wagers on both sides. Uh, it's Joseph Conrad. Mm-hmm. Joseph Conrad wrote The Duelists, which I did not yeah. know. Uh, so I watched this episode on YouTube and the first comment under there was this diatribe from some rando who was like, I am absolutely appalled that none of the contestants got this. Why aren't Jeopardy contestants learning about the seminal author, Joseph Conrad? And I'm like, cause it's probably, cause it's not very good. I mean, <laughs> like also yeah. like that, that's a deeper pull than you're normally going to need to know for Jeopardy. Right. Like you need to know Lord Jim and Heart of Darkness. Heart of Darkness. Yeah. And that's pretty much it. Anyway, if you're yeah. if, if that person also listens to our podcast, which I doubt, like, <laughs> hey, I f- firmly and vehemently disagree with you. Mm-hmm. I think just the fact that you happen to like Joseph Conrad does not mean that you get to be like, you know, criticizing these finalists. Yeah. It was Brian Chang, I think, who who was pointing us toward as they continue to play against each other, they start to know each other's wagering strategies and try mm-hmm. and hedge against those. The wagering becomes less about like math and more, you know, the, the math of it and more about reading your opponents and like trying to like think one step ahead of them. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. And this, this could be an example of that. Yeah. So, I mean, Amy here, like the, correct quote unquote correct uh wager according to kind of classic strategy would be 15,001 which would drop her down to just under 10,000 right. oh she would actually have won with that um well, still yeah but i think you know in this case she decides to to wager small because she thinks you know if they're anticipating me doing that you know maybe they've you know wagered accordingly and I can uh, be one step ahead, make a second order wager or whatever. I mean, I'm not, I'm not totally sure what's happening in everyone's heads. But it like, I don't think it's that they just don't know the math, yeah. right? No, like, no, I, 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 that, that I'm sure it's like not. Like, they know the math. I'm confident on that. And so I think that they are, now we're starting to see them try and guess how the others are going to play it, which is interesting. Yeah. yeah. So that brings us to Friday. Uh, Andrew and Amy each have two wins and Sam does not have any, which means all of us are rooting for Sam now because we want the tournament to keep going. Yep. And because, I mean, you know, they're all very endearing contestants and we would like to see them each get a win. I'm sure each of them want to, you know, just get their three wins and go home. But we want it to be as long as possible with as much joy as possible. Yes. I don't think we've said anything about Sam always saying bring it on to ask for the last clue on the board. Yeah, he has seemed to be in that position a number of times. Yeah. That's been that's been one of his one of his things, one of his bits. Mm-hmm. Uh so um our Jeopardy round categories on Friday are US cities, furniture, five syllable words, TV dramas by episode titles, the anti category, anti in quotation marks. And the Neanderthals. They struggled with that furniture category. Yeah. Didn't didn't get a whole lot of correct responses. No. In fact, only one. Yeah. At the $200 level. Uh, The clue was turn in just about any direction in the type of office chair known as this spinning motion and tilt. Andrew got swivel. The next one was a picture clue. It showed a roll top desk. The clue was... 
the timbre is what gives this piece of furniture seen here its name. I know I, I would have been hesitant to guess roll top desk because I would have assumed there was a fancier name or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe that's what was going on, but they were just looking for roll top desk. Yeah. I really enjoyed the $600 level of five syllable words. It was, uh, this word describes each correct response in the category. <laughs> and Sam got it. It is pentasyllabic, which is a mm-hmm. five syllable word for having five syllables. Yes. I wonder if they would have accepted polysyllabic because hmm. that is also correct and also five syllables. True. I think maybe they would have had to. Because that's the word that jumped to my mind immediately. And Sam said p- pentasyllabic. And I was like, oh, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. But then I then I gave it more thought and considered that I wouldn't have been wrong. So. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number one is in that furniture category. It's at the $600 level. Uh, it was only pick number four. That's where they started. And Amy found it. She's at 1,000 and makes it a true Daily Double. Sam's at negative 1,000 and Andrew's at 200. The name of this piece of furniture comes from the French for to put to bed. And she is unable to get it. She guesses what is armoire, uh, but it is a couch from Coucher. From Coucher. 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 Like that, like that line from Lady Marmalade. If that pop culture reference helps anyone. Maybe just me. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Amy is at 6,600. She's gotten herself back up in the lead. Andrew's at 2,200 and Sam is at 1,600. With the double Jeopardy categories, historic castles, band ad, paint samples, American women, 20th century fiction, and before, during, and after. Yay! Before, during, and after. Yay! We have not had Roman numeral math. That better be on Monday. mm, They're playing real fast and loose here, not putting Roman numeral math before the Tournament of Champions could have ended. I, I, I expect it on Monday. I need it on Monday. Yeah, really. I mean... They've had two full weeks of the tournament at this point. And no Roman numeral math. No Roman numeral math. Thinking. Um, God. Anyway, I'm sorry. All right, we got before, um, during, and after, which I love. I love before, during, and after. Yes. Ping pong, aka that gives you an arm joint ache, treatable with a curved pasta, table tennis elbow macaroni. It's so good. I love it. Yep. And tart tot candy for a sketch comedy group in charge of making sure those in school don't run in the corridors. That is Sour Patch Kids in the Hall Monitor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Kids in the so Hall good. is like one of the gajillion ste- sketch comedy shows with which I'm not especially familiar, but it's the one that I always guess on trivia questions. So must yeah. have felt good to get it in there. Yep. The first pick of the round was the $1,200 of American Women. And this is just a, a classic Pavlov for Jeopardy folks. For a 1915 exhibition to help raise money for women's suffrage, this impressionist sent a number of her works from France. So American impressionist in France and as a woman is Mary mm-hmm. Cassatt. Always. always. Always Mary Cassatt. All right. Daily Double number two is at the $1,600 level of 20th century fiction. Andrew finds it. It's the ninth pick. He has 5,000 
Um, he's in third place. Sam's at 6,000. Amy's at 8,600. He makes it a true daily double. So he's looking to take the lead and he gets the clue. This book with a facial feature in its title was Toni Morrison's debut novel. And he gets it correct. It is the bluest eye. Mm -hmm. So he goes up to 10,000 and then the next pick, he finds daily double number three in the paint samples category at the $1,200 level. This one's a $1,200 clue. And I think this one's a lot more obscure than the $1,600 clue that he just got. But anyway, uh, he thinks about it for a long time, but he does wager it all, all 10,000, and gets a clue. Don't try to pet this cat in a tricky canvas by Louis-Leopold Boilly, who invented this French term. Andrew has absolutely nothing. And Ken tells us that it's not a real cat in... How do you pronounce that? Trompe l'oeil. Trompe l'oeil. Why are there so many extra letters? I know. I know. (laughs) Trompe l'oeil. Again, like I've never even heard that term. Oh. Not not that I'm an expert, but. Yeah. It means trick of the eye. And it is a painting that it like that has like an optical illusion to it to like make it look as if it's. I don't know, not a painting, right? Like, yes. Um, So I I can't remember if this is the image that they used for the Jeopardy clue, but like Googling uh, the artist name and, uh, and cat, there's like a painting that looks like it's the back of a painting and the canvas is ripped and a cat is coming through the hole. Was Mm. that, do you remember if that was what the, what the painting was? I have no idea. Sure. Yeah. They didn't show the painting, but I have, we have a Trompe painting of like memorabilia from our wedding. Actually, we have a friend who Ooh. like, he's really into art and he knows a bunch of artists and like, he asked us to like, give him some items that would come back to us. And so it looks like it's like a collage of like, you know, dried flowers and, you know, a cocktail napkin and like whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But it's all, but it's all a painting. Oh, today I learned. Mm-hmm. After clue 29, Sam says, he, instead of bring it on, which is what everyone's come to expect at this point, he says, may I please have the final clue? Yes. <laughs> um, yes, he does. I, I'm really enjoying his, his vibe. Um, yes. Anyway, uh, so they have the final clue. And then at the end of the double jeopardy round, Amy's at 15,800. Sam's at 11,200. Andrew is at 6,800. The final jeopardy category is English cities. And the clue is William the Conqueror's son built a fortress on a key northern river in 1080, giving this city its name. Andrew tried what is Avon. I think Avon is, is think- a river, isn't it? Yeah, Avon's the river. So I guess he's thinking of Stratford on Avon, That's, right? That would be my only guess, right? Um, and that he thinks, you know, maybe this is, maybe we're getting at like Shakespeare's town in a roundabout way. Um, yeah. He's wagered 6,700, so he drops down to 100. Sam figured it out uh, with what is Newcastle. He had Newcastle upon Tyne, but then he crossed out upon Tyne. He wagered every penny he's got, uh, and he gets it right. Um, So he goes up to 22,400. And Amy has what is Newcastle as well. She was in the lead. She did not make a cover bet. Um, she just wagered 1800, 
which brings her up to 17,600, but not as high as Sam has gotten. So Sam does get his first win. Mm-hmm. And um, she tweeted a little bit about her, her rationale for this wager. Yeah. And I think a kind of a key thing, I don't remember all of her points, but I think a key thing to consider here is that if she makes a cover bet, Sam is in second place. So if she makes a cover bet and then she and Sam both miss it, then Andrew will likely get his third win. Mm -hmm. And Sam getting his first win does like, obviously, obviously she wants the win, right? But if, if Andrew gets a win, then the tournament ends and Andrew is the winner. But if Sam gets a win, then they go to the next game. Keeping Andrew locked out is, I think, a very strategic play here. Right. Also, Sam could have done, you know, he he, he may have bet just to get a dollar over mm-hmm. Amy's current, you know, go, score going in. So if he didn't bet big, she could still have won. Yes. With that bet. But we get more tournaments. Yay, more tournaments. Hooray, more tournament. The best outcome. <laughs> yeah. And it's good to see. I mean I mean Sam has Sam has been phenomenally successful. That's how he got to the finals. But also but... he's been he's been in every game. It's not like mm-hmm. the fact that he had no wins was not like he'd been just, you know, getting stomped the whole time. He just Yeah, it just hasn't actually been shaking out for him when you come down to the, those final scores. But yeah, he's absolutely been in the mix. So this is the point of the episode when we remind you that we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potent potables. You can head over there and send us a couple bucks, bunks, bucks, (laughs) send us a couple bucks a month. A couple of something. (laughs) A couple of magic beans. Um, That helps us with the uh, offset the costs of producing this podcast so that we can keep doing what we do. So, you know, if that's something that you're able to support, we would greatly appreciate it. And we greatly appreciate those of you who are supporting us now. Um, and we don't like to ask for money without um, acknowledging that there are more important things in the world uh, than our podcast. You can find some of the ones we care about in our show notes. Um, abortionfunds.org is one that we've been especially highlighting recently. We also note that Amy Schneider was uh, testifying in Ohio um, in support of trans youth. I don't know if there's a particular organization that uh, that she cares about or works with, um, but that's a that's a cause that's close to my heart, at least. I have some uh, some local ones near to me that do that kind of work. If there are organizations like that near you that are supporting GLBTQ plus youth. I think that's a that's a particularly um apropos place to give some of your energy and your your support these days. Agreed. Okay. I don't think we need to do deep dive guesses because you know, like we agreed that I was going to come yeah, back we, to this we whole, know what it is. This whole Hebrew right. thing. Um I mean, I could guess it so, and get the points for it. <laughs> uh yes. <laughs> I thought about talking like about Hebrews in depth and then I was kind of like, nah, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, it is worth knowing that it exists that, that book. But I thought, um, instead of that, I would, uh, do a, 
a little bit more of a, like, widen the scope and not go quite as deep about Hebrews um, and just talk about New Testament epistles. I'll make sure and, you know, kind of highlight Hebrews a little bit as we, as we, uh, when we, when that one comes up. Um, But I thought I'd talk about, you know, because the, the controversy is around kind of the phrase of Paul's letters if I'm remembering mm-hmm. the the phrasing exactly correctly, I thought, you know what, let's let's uh, let's talk about the letters and the Paul's letters and the possibly Paul's letters in the New Testament and explore that a little bit. Yeah. So uh, the New Testament has 27 books. A book in this case, just to try and make totally sure that I'm not using sort of jargon that that doesn't make sense to people. Um, a book in this case does not mean that it's like hundreds of pages like a contemporary book. It's just distinct, you know, pieces of writing, some of which are less than a page long, some of which are a dozen pages long or something like that. Um, so the New Testament has 27 books. Those books include four Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, which is kind of historical about stuff that happened with the apostles and the early church after the events described in the four gospels Um, at the end is revelation. And then everything between acts and revelation are books that are considered epistles. Um, So if you've been keeping track along with me, that is six books that are not epistles out of the 27. So 21 epistles in the new Testament. It's a, it's epistle heavy. Although um, I have seen compelling cases, both for thinking of Revelation as an epistle. It's not officially, you know, kind of classified as an epistle, but there sure. there is kind of a like a letter format to it. And for considering that perhaps Hebrews is not an epistle at all. Um, so those are some conversations that happen in the kind of like biblical genre scholarship world. You don't need to know all the details of them, but you know, officially, you know, in terms of like traditional classifications, Hebrews is an epistle and Revelation is not, but you know, Bible scholars, you know, are exploring those topics a little bit. Hmm. Um, so epistles, it's just a fancy word for letters. Epistles, they're, they're letters, they're often formal and didactic. Um, and they're some of the earliest surviving Christian texts that we have. One of the standards that early church leaders imposed for including a text in the canon of what they would consider scripture was association with one of the apostles. So every book in the New Testament has some traditional association with an apostle. That doesn't mean an apostle wrote it. It just means that at some point, some church leaders speculated that an apostle wrote it. Hmm. Uh, So all of them have, you know, some, at some point, somebody thought an apostle wrote them, right? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four gospels. Those are names of apostles. We don't know the names of whoever wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The authors are not identified within in, within the texts. But for various reasons, each of those four gospels came to be identified with one of the apostles. And that was kind of a prerequisite for them being considered scripture from a Chris, Christian perspective. Some New Testament books have, you know, pretty histor- have pretty historically verifiable uh, connections with 
apostles, others, it's it's much more speculative, like like the gospels that I was describing. So of the epistles, seven are definitively not Pauline. They have never been considered Pauline. Those ones are called the Catholic epistles, Catholic in the sense of general or universal, not in the sense of Roman Catholic. And the seven Catholic epistles are each named after their author. Uh, so the Catholic epistles are James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Jude. And then there are seven epistles that are undisputed Pauline epistles. So undisputed means they say they're by Paul. Everyone thinks they're by Paul. You know, nobody thinks they're not by Paul. <laughs> um, uh, they're just, they're written by Paul. Those undisputed Pauline epistles are 1st Thessalonians, Galatians, both epistles to the Corinthians, Philippians, Philemon, and Romans. Um, and that was that was in like roughly chronological order uh, from when scholars think they were written. So Pauline epistles, there's a there's kind of a predictable structure. There's a little variation within the content varies. Pastors and Bible scholars joke around about this because we're a fun bunch. Um, so <laughs> so Pauline epistles, they'll they'll start with a salutation. It always like the first word is Paul, right? He's identifying himself like, you know, Paul. And then he'll describe who he is, you know, Paul, the apostle, blah, 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 blah. Often he'll, you know, expand a little bit on how he describes himself, sometimes in connection to what he's about to write to the people about. And then to, and then whoever it is that he's writing to, right, to the church in Corinth, greetings. So, that you know, there's always a salutation. And then usually he talks about um, how he is thankful for the church or the individual he's writing to, um, that he prays for them. Um, there's kind of, he butters them up a little bit. Um, and then often it goes into kind of proclamation of the gospel, right? Recapping sort of major kind of, um, tenets of Christianity that he wants to emphasize. And then he moves into, so I heard that you haven't been behaving yourselves, so I need you to <laughs> knock it off. Right. Um, and then it's like, say hello to Priscilla. Timothy says, hi, I'm going to try and come visit soon. And then that's the end. Or, you know, like the, 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 the specifics vary, right? But there's a bunch of, at, at the end, after the, after the knock it off and get it together part, right? Then there's like greetings and logistics, Right. And like, that's the close of the letter, right? So that's the kind of general outline of a Pauline epistle. That's um, what we're expecting to see there. And we have basically that in the seven undisputed Pauline epistles I mentioned. Um, and then, so I said there are 21 epistles, seven are Catholic epistles, definitely not Paul, seven are undisputed Pauline, that leaves seven others. Um, so six of those have claims that they are from Paul, right? They have that classic Pauline opening salutation, those six, uh, there are varying degrees of consensus about whether they are in fact authentically Pauline or whether they are pseudepigrapha. Um, pseudo, that's like pseudo and epigraph, right? Pseudepigrapha. Um, so pseudepigrapha is a, a technical term for um, a writing that is not by the person it states it is written by. Um, and instead is written um, sort of in emulation of that person uh, with 
under their name and in an attempt to imitate their style. Sometimes when I try and describe this to people, they it seems like uh, it sounds to them as if I am saying, oh, it's um, it's a forgery or like a fraud. And people don't like to think about like that the Bible is, you know, has things that are like comparable to fan fiction, but like think of it more like fan fiction. That pseudepigrapha were kind of a recognized way for um, disciples and followers of a major figure to kind of continue their legacy, right? That that you that that you would that it was it was accepted to kind of write in emulation of. Uh, the teacher that you were that you were following. Uh, so, Ephesians, Colossians, and Second Thessalonians are possibly pseudepigrapha. First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus, uh, which are collectively called the pastoral epistles, those three. There's a strong consensus that those are pseudepigrapha. When scholars are analyzing this, they look at stylistic similarities and differences. They look at um, the content and theology of the work. They look at biographic details that are explicit or implicit um, and whether they fit with Paul's biography as we understand it. They look for uh, references to the text in question in other sources that would have been written shortly afterwards. So, you know, if, if, uh, if other communities or figures are familiar with a piece of writing that proves that it existed at that time. It wasn't, you know, written decades later in emulation of authentic documents. Yeah, so those are some of the things that scholars are looking for and considering as they try to kind of debate these authorship questions. It is important to note that while my particular uh, branch of Christianity is open to all of this historical scholarship and what it can teach us. And we see it as kind of informing our biblical study. There are whole branches of the church that see literal interpretation of the Bible as essential to the faith and rejecting the findings of scholarship that doesn't match with literal interpretation of the Bible as kind of necessary and you know, part of what it means to be Christian as they understand it. So just just a note, <laughs> mm-hmm. just a note that there are there are churches for which if it says it's by Paul, then it's by Paul, because that it is kind of an article of faith that like everything in the Bible is literally true and without error, hmm. you know, so yes. uh, we're probably pretty familiar with that in terms of like the creationism, you know, versus like evolution kind of debate, you know, but it comes up with historical scholarship around biblical texts as well. Just a note that, you know, while while academic scholarship is pretty clear on all of this, there are parts of the church where saying, well, I know it says it's by Paul, but, you know, here's all of this, you know, literary and historical information is not welcome or appropriate. So, mm. yeah, I feel like I need to kind of mention that when I start talking about kind of academic stuff around the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, Just don't want to ruin anybody's Thanksgiving. Um, (laughs) All right. So, uh, so we've talked about six, possibly Pauline, possibly not Pauline letters. Uh, And then there's Hebrews. Although it was canonized as an epistle, right? We, We know it as the letter to the Hebrews or epistle to the Hebrews. Many scholars think it is better characterized as a sermon. 
Hmm. A supposed connection to Paul qualified it for inclusion in the New Testament, right? There were people who thought that perhaps Paul wrote it. Um, But even in the early church, uh, church leaders were taking a range of positions on whether it was written by Paul. Tertullian thought it was written by Barnabas. Origen, um, according to the early Christian historian Eusebius, uh, said that the thoughts are those of the apostle, uh, the apostle Paul, that is, but the diction and phraseology are those of someone who remembered the apostolic teachings and wrote down at his leisure what had been said by his teacher. So there was there was already sort of vibrant, you know, sort of debate and like a like a range of opinions about whether it was Pauline or written by somebody else, even in the early church as they were um, making decisions about what was in and what was out of Christian scripture. St. Jerome, the translator of the Vulgate in the fourth century, sort of in acknowledgement of this uncertainty, uh, included it, but put it after all of the Pauline epistles. So that's how it got its place in the order of the of the New Testament books. Um, the King James Version uh, took Pauline authorship basically for granted. I don't really know why I haven't been able to find out a lot about this. Um, and so uh, Ian on Twitter tweeted uh, a reply to one of my tweets with a with an image of the first page of Hebrews from the King James, then 1611 King James Version. And it's headed the Epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews, which because Jeopardy treats the King James Version as authoritative, that is probably how that clue made it through fact-checking. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they did not notice or decided to disregard the translators of the King James Version were taking taking like a pre- pretty much a, a position that has since been discredited and which was e- debated even at the time and had already been debated for over a hundred for over a thousand years at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, uh, the King James translators um, just took Pauline authorship for granted. And so here we are. Reformers, including uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin, considered Hebrews to be non-Pauline. And by the 1800s or so, uh, any claim of Pauline authorship was pretty much abandoned. There are some other names that have come up as possible authors of the text. Um, Apollos is one that scholars have proposed. Um Apollos was another Christian teacher who was mentioned in some of Paul's epistles, sometimes as like kind of in competition with Paul, sometimes as like a kind of a, you know, a, you know, a, a colleague. Clement is another one who has been mentioned as a possible author. Uh, Timothy, who was kind of a companion and disciple of Paul. Hebrews does have toward the end a uh, part that mentions that Timothy will come to visit soon or something along those lines. Um, and so there's been some speculation that maybe Timothy wrote it, but then Paul or someone else was like uh, transcribe, like transcribing the, the concluding passage. Mm. Um, and then one uh, theory that's this kind of intriguing is uh, that it could have been written by Priscilla, who was a female leader of the early church, I don't think there are a whole lot of reasons to think that it was any of these people, honestly. And like some of the arguments for Priscilla strike me as like a little bit like raw, raw girl power without like actual evidence to back it up. But the case there is all of the other epistles make some kind of authorship claim. And Hebrew seems to be intentionally anonymous. 
And so people who kind of want to make a case for Priscilla as the author point to that and say, maybe this, maybe this female leader of the church, you know, didn't want to write under somebody else's name, but knew that, you know, her, her role was controversial in some ways. Mm -hmm. One other thing that comes up in authorship conversations is the use of an amanuensis, which is a person who takes letters by dictation using an amanuensis can kind of influence kind of how the letter comes out. And so with some of the Pauline authorship questions and things, oh, maybe it was Paul, but somebody different was writing for him, uh, comes up as, you know, something that people speculate about or those kinds of those kinds of things. Um, so that's a little bit about the categorization of the various epistles and, and authorship questions. And I thought I'd run through very quickly uh, the 21 uh, epistles in their order in the New Testament, um, super briefly, okay. like like a sentence-ish each. Um, so the first section of the epistles um, is Paul's letter to churches. Um, and in the New Testament, they're ordered from long to short. So Romans is the first one because it's the longest. It is definitely Pauline. It was written around 55 to 57 CE. Um, for the ones that are definitely Pauline, we can get a pretty narrow date range because we understand kind of where he was at various times and what happened in what order. And we can kind of narrow down the years that things were written based on his biography. For things that are not Pauline, it's much murkier. Anyway, uh, 55 to 57 CE. Unlike most other epistles, Paul was writing to the church in Rome without having already visited them. He is writing in anticipation of um, a planned visit. Romans has themes of grace, faith, and righteousness. And uh, for trivia purposes, um, it might be worth knowing the phrase Romans Road, which is like an evangelism thing, hmm. uh, like a Christian, like an evangelical uh, thing where it's like a set of scriptures that are all from Romans that if someone is trying to present a case to somebody that they're trying to convert to Christianity, there are all of these like guides to like using the Romans road where you say, okay, read this, now read this, now read this, now read this. Hmm. And it's kind of making your way through it's, they're all kind of in Romans in sequence so that you don't so that you're not kind of jumping around. Um, so the Romans road comes up from time to time. One time I bought like a half dozen eggs from like a random like little farmer's market egg farmer and the Romans road was like printed inside the like the <laughs> egg carton cover <laughs> to try and like make sure that like they were reaching out and, you know, trying to you convert like their customers. Yeah. So that's Romans. Uh, First Corinthians is also definitely Pauline, probably written around 53 to 54. Um addressing conflict and immorality within the Corinthian church. Um, it has that famous passage from weddings. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. You've probably heard that one before. Um, yep. Yep. We, we read it in weddings, but like, it was like, it's because they're all being jerks to each other, right? Like it's not about marriage. Uh, it's not about romantic love. I mean, it can be, it's, it's lovely. It's fine. You can read it at a wedding, you know, it's fine. But like the subtext of love is patient, love is kind is like, so knock it off. Yeah. Um, there are some lost epistles to the Corinthian church. We can tell that they existed because Paul makes reference to in my previous letter. And we can tell that the previous letter that he's referencing is not one that we have. 
but there's uh, there's there's also Second Corinthians, uh, which is possibly a composite letter. It's possible that he, it was um, put together from pieces of more than one letter, probably written around fifty five to fifty seven, um, definitely Pauline, and it's continuing to follow up on that same conflict and controversy that he's been addressing in First Corinthians, um, defending his role as an apostle. Because I think some of that conflict is is spilling over into like, and who is this Paul guy anyway? And uh, and promising that he's going to visit them again. Galatians uh, was written in the late 40s or early 50s. It might be the earliest one or the earliest one might be First Thessalonians. Um, but it's definitely Pauline. And it really focuses on how Christians should think about Jewish law. Galatian, the Galatian church is like a mix of uh, Gentile and Jewish uh, converts to Christianity. And then it has that famous line about there is no longer Jew nor Greek, uh, slave nor free, male and female, which that might be a familiar quotation or one that could conceivably come up in trivia. Um, Ephesians is the, is the next in New Testament order, but it is Deuteropauline. So maybe written by Paul, maybe not. If Paul wrote it, he wrote it around 62. If he didn't, it might have been written around 70 to 80. There's a focus on the unity of the church, um, and it has a controversial passage that you might have heard, and which Jed Bartlett, like, and and uh, oh gosh, what's her name in the West Wing? The president and his wife like argue about it after hearing about it at church. It's like a household code about uh, wives obey your husbands, um, mm-hmm. uh, and also uh, it touches on parents and children, masters and slaves. So household codes. Uh, ooh gets a little dicey. Philippians is definitely Pauline, but might be a composite of more than one letter uh, written in the 50s or early 60s. And it's especially noted for uh, like a poem, hymn kind of thing in its second chapter, which maybe Paul was quoting from like Christian, like worship practices. It's likely that he didn't like compose a poem himself. He didn't or or him himself. That wasn't kind of his style. Um, it also has the line rejoice in the Lord always, if that's uh, something that's familiar. And I think Philippians is also the so- source for um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, Colossians comes next. It's another Deutero-Pauline one. So maybe Pauline, maybe not. If it was Pauline, it was 60s, could be as late as 90. And uh, there's like a doctrinal section that's really, you know, about like the theology of like Christ. Um, And then a conduct section that's more about Christian virtue. First Thessalonians comes next. Uh, That's another one that's definitely Pauline, maybe one of the earliest, um, maybe around 52. So it's like, it seems like he's addressing questions in that one, right? Like all of these epistles, they're like, they're mail that's going back and forth between Paul or in some cases, not Paul and a church, right? And so like, Mm -hmm. he's, you know, we're kind of listening in, like we're we're listening in on one side of the conversation. Um, It seems like he's answering some questions around death and the end times in this one. Um, Second Thessalonians, um, Deuteropauline. So if Paul wrote it, it, he wrote it right after First Thessalonians. But if he didn't, it might be like somewhere between 80 and 115 CE. There's an implication that there are false teachers uh, that Paul is dealing with. Um, and then it has a, a line that gets uh, gets thrown around quite a bit in policy debates. Anyone who will not work should not eat. Um hmm. Yeah. So if you ever hear that, that's where that comes from. 
which fascinatingly in you know in our context gets used against like um social safety net kinds of programs mm-hmm. um but it, there's a history in communist countries of it being used against like the wealthy right like the mm-hmm. people who aren't like the working class but are just you know yeah. making money off of like owning stuff mm-hmm. first timothy comes next uh it is a pastoral epistle pastoral uh first timothy second timothy and titus are the pastoral epistles so like written to people in pastoral kinds of roles um it is probably not authentically pauline um probably late first or early second second century um uh but it's presented as paul counseling his younger colleague and delegate timothy regarding his ministry in ephesus um, First Timothy is especially noted because it's where we find, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, uh, yeah. which there's a whole, there's a lot of history of like, you know, understanding the context and interpretation of that and, you know, whatever, um, right. which we're not going to get into here today. But sometimes people hear that I'm a pastor and say, but you're don't you don't you know about First Timothy? Yeah, <laughs> as if as if it had not come up before, as if I oh gosh, I guess I hadn't read that part. I, yeah, um, my mistake. Yep, whoopsie daisies. Second Timothy is another pastoral epistle, so um, also probably not Paul. More advice to Timothy, exhortation, that kind of thing. Titus, uh, same deal, but this one's supposed to be to Titus. Um, mm-hmm. Really no idea when this was written. Could be as early as the 80s, could be late second century. And there's a description of the requirements and duties of elders and bishops. That kind of thing is a tell that it's definitely later in the development of the church, right? When you're Mm -hmm. getting into the the nitty gritty details of like a complex structure of hierarchy and like authority because like the church has gotten bigger and you need kind of more complex like you need a you know more people uh keeping track of everything right like that's that's a tell that it's not from the super early days of like you know a tiny little upstart movement Mm -hmm. um philemon uh definitely pauline 57 to 62 uh written by paul to an individual named philemon about his slave Onesimus, possibly a runaway slave. It's very, very short. And its history of like interpretation with regard to slavery is is interesting stuff. And then we have Hebrews. I've touched on Hebrews a little bit, um, probably written in 63 or 64-ish. The kind of TLDR one-liner is about persistence in the face of persecution. Uh, James comes next. Uh, the author is identified as James, a servant of God. Um, it made it into the New Testament because traditionally the author was viewed as being James, the brother of Jesus. It's probably not the case. Um, mm. But anyway, in James, uh, the author writes to encourage his readers to live consistently with what they've learned in Christ, um, condemning various sins, pride, hypocrisy, etc. He implores believers to humbly live by godly rather than worldly wisdom um, and pray in all situations. Martin Luther hated James and said that it was an epistle of straw. Um, We have first and second Peter made it into the new Testament because of its association with Simon Peter. Um, The first one could be by Simon Peter. It's possible. Uh, The second one definitely is not. If uh, the first one is by Simon Peter could be around 60. If they're, both pseudepigraphal uh, 
as late as 112, 150, themes of enduring persecution, uh, which, you know, sort of makes sense, uh, given the, the um, traditional connection with Simon Peter. Um, and then we have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, possibly written by the same John who wrote the gospel, and certainly not the Apostle John. And John of Patmos, the one who wrote Revelation, was also a separate John. Um, but the, the John who wrote the epistles could also be the John who wrote the gospel. 1st John has themes of love and fellowship with God. Um, second and third John are the shortest books of the Bible. Uh, which one is actually shortest depends on what translation you're looking at, but they're like 300 words each or so. Uh, second John is a, against Gnosticism, to put it briefly. Um, mm. And third, the third one has um, kind of a focus on hospitality. And Jude is traditionally traditionally attributed to Jude, the brother of Jesus. Uh, could be written anywhere between 50 and 110. CE, uh, so big range there, and uh, condemns fiercely uh, certain people the author sees as a threat to the early Christian community, but the description is so vague that we don't really know what he was talking about. So those are the 21 epistles of the New Testament. Okay. And uh, yeah, <laughs> hopefully it was not too in-depth, but maybe maybe uh, folks picked up a little bit they didn't know, and sure. um, hopefully now we all know <laughs> the problem was with that Hebrews clue. Oh my goodness. I think it's been made clear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry. I, mm, I feel strongly about this one. I get anyway. that. Yes. Yeah. Are you, re- <laughs> are you ready for a quiz? Of course. All right. Um, so Paul wrote to all these different uh, churches in these various places and all the, the epistles are kind of named after um, the, the places where these, where these communities are. Were based, um, and so I took some of those place names as the theme for the quiz. Okay. Um, all right. So, question one: Name the radio producer who hosts the show Ninety Nine Percent Invisible, created the podcast Collective Radiotopia, and has collaborated with Justin McElroy. Hmm. Uh, that's how I know that. That it's uh, Roman Mars. That is Roman Mars. Yes, I don't know a whole lot about him. I uh, the collaboration with Justin McElroy. I thought you would recognize when I looked him up, um, but I know him from Ninety Nine Percent Invisible, which is also a great show. I have listened a couple times to that. Yeah, yeah, it is a good show. Yeah, yeah. So that was you know Romans. I figured branch out. I figured I'd, uh, I'd take that in a, in a, an unusual and on sort of unexpected direction. All right. Um, question two, uh, the actor Boyd Holbrook portrays a villain called the Corinthian in what 2022 television, television series. I talk about the author of its source material quite a lot. It was a Netflix series. Yes. I think I know what it is. Uh, it's, it's just, sticking at me and i haven't read it and i haven't watched it but i'm gonna guess sandman it is the sandman yes it's on my list to both read and watch yeah uh, sandman is great um the the i have i started watching the sandman series but i haven't finished it yet but what i saw was good yeah and the corinthian is like he's like an incarnate nightmare who has like little mouths where his eyes should be behind his sunglasses oh, that's fun yeah. So now everybody will have nightmares. Yeah. Um, he's a yeah. He's a creepy one. 
Um, all right, you're at 20 points. And question three, the epistle to the Ephesians isn't the only religious history of note in Ephesus. What landmark drew a different group of worshipers? I can say more if you need me to. Uh, I'm pretty sure the temple of Artemis was in, or temple of Diana. Yes. Was in Ephesus. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. Wait, is it? In my head, it's temple of Artemis. Well, it's Artemis is for it? the Greek. Yeah. Diana for the Romans. Yep, that's right. Um, yeah, so the, the temple of Artemis or Diana, as the case may be in Ephesus, is correct. Nice. Uh, we're at 30 points. And question four. Colossae, um, as in Colossians, was in Phrygia, which was its own kingdom before it was conquered and became part of a series of empires. Some of the historic kings of Phrygia are familiar names from mythology. One associated with a knot, one with the Amazons, and one uh, known for his capacity for Chrysopoeia. Name any of them. Hmm. Chrysopoeia? 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 Hmm. Hmm. I don't know what that means. The, the knot, I think it's the Gordian knot. But I don't know if his name was Gordian or his name was Gordy or G- Gordus or Gord, Goro. But that's the only one that I can think of because with the, with the Amazons, I, I remember Queen Hippolyta, but I don't remember the, I don't remember the dude. So I'm going to go with. Gor- <laughs> Flash Gordon. <laughs> um, I don't know how to go. Ah, uh, it's uh, I don't know. Gordis. Gordon. Gordia. Oh God. Gord. Man, why is it so hard for me to pick one? Uh, you have come across the correct one at least once in the. I'm sure. Sh- I know. I I'm confident. I have. Uh, ah, fuck. Gord. What? What were you gonna say? Oh no! I was gonna say. I could make this so much easier by telling you what Chrysopoeia means, but I'm not. You going could. To. I I feel like I know. I or I I feel like. Like, I feel like I know who the king is. I just don't know what that means, so I can't. But anyway, uh, Gord... Gordus, final answer. It's Gordius. Ah, damn uh, it! Migdon, King Migdon, went to war with the Amazons, and Chrysopoeia means to turn stuff into gold. So oh, that was Midas. That, if I took some time to think about it, I would have, I could have probably got to Chryso for gold. Yeah, yeah. Um, That was that was a little that was a little rough. (laughs) Is it spelled I A S? It is I A S. Yes. Of course it is because I'm an absolute. But hey, you're at thirty points. Okay. Uh, Question five: Thessalonians was written to the church of Thessaloniki or Thessalonica. You'll sometimes see it written. Uh, what does Thessaloniki have in common with Beijing, Montreal, and Milan, among many others? 
This trait is also possibly behind the name of an organization that has included the likes of Eugene Levy, Jordan Peele, and Nia Vardalos. I can give you some easier names for the organization. No, I'm pretty sure I know the organization. I'm trying to think of how they would be. The organization, I'm pretty sure, is Second City. But mm-hmm. do I just say that they are Second Cities? I think I I'll take that. Okay, because I don't know, like, I don't know what else. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, they are they are second largest cities, but um, oh, okay. second, yeah, second city can mean. It, it seems like it's more often like kind of second to some other city in terms of like like cultural significance or like right um that kind of thing um but in in this case those ones uh that i mentioned are second largest in their country uh chicago being called the second city um might have to do with rebuilding after the great fire um or might have to do with like its rivalry with new york new york um which was outpacing it in terms you know but but i think both culturally and you know sort of population wise yeah Yeah. um so you're at 40 points and what do we call this category we're gonna call it we're gonna just call it call it literature i have no idea how to go about that so i will go with Mm, 25. Okay. For 65 points. One of the defining features of several of Paul's letters, including Philippians, is something that it shares with certain writings by Oscar Wilde, John Bunyan, the Marquis de Sade, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. What do the writings of this unexpected group have in common? Uh, they are all written directly to me. No, they're all written from prison. They are written from prison. Nice job. Or or a jail. Or yes. A gulag. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the list of prison writings is interesting because it's a mix of religious mar- martyrs and people who had been accused of being perverts um, <laughs> uh, with just a few random others thrown in, but most of them are either there because like they are extremely religious or because people had a real problem with their sex lives. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good but company, yes. Right? <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, Hey, that gets you to 65 points. Uh, nice job. Nice. Well, Thank you, Kyle. And uh, thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you would. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who are into Jeopardy, let them know about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. And we'll be back next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye.